Hello, this is Philippe Rover. I'm the Global Sales and Marketing Director here at the Kusnak Practice. We are reinventing the experience of care. I am here this morning with Melissa Nobile. She's the uh, Psychologist Operation Coordinator and Project Manager here at the Kusnak Practice. Good morning. Good morning, Philippe. So with Melissa this morning, we are going to talk about depression and suicidal thoughts in young people after Justin Bieber spoke of his uh, mental health problems. Young people are suffering from depression more than ever during the pandemic, with 59% of the 17 to 20 years old and 54% of the 11 to 16 years old telling an NHS survey that their lives have got worse in 2020. And uh, singer Justin Bieber is the latest in a series of young entertainers to open up about his own loneliness and suicidal thoughts. In a revealing new documentary titled Justin Bieber Next Chapter, the singer admitted, I think that there was times where I was really, really suicidal. Like, really like, man, is this pain ever going to go away? It was so consistent, the pain was so consistent, he says. And have you seen, Melissa, an increase in young people with suicidal thoughts and depression, likewise, through your work at the clinic? If we're talking uh, in general since the pandemic, it's still quite early to, to conclude with any numbers, and I think we'll have to wait a few years before we have more perspective on what's going on. But what I can talk to you about is the general tendency that's being reported in different clinical settings, inpatient, outpatient, hospitalizations, etc. And what I'm hearing from co-workers in the field, and that is that during the first wave of the pandemic, so when it pretty much began in March, April, May, June, there was actually a decrease in young people seeking mental health services, which doesn't mean that they weren't suffering, uh, but that simply the access was less there. And then as the summer began, in Europe at least, in, in August and then September, and since then, it's been definitely quite uh, an important increase in, um, in young people under 25 seeking mental health services. And what clinicians are reporting is that not only is there a lot more young people seeking these services, they're also coming with more severe symptoms that they were co- that, that, that we usually see in these settings. So we kind of have as clinicians this average of what we, we see on a day-to-day basis in our clinic, wherever that may be. And there's this tendency now where pathologies are becoming a little bit more severe at the moment. But again, I'm really reporting what I'm hearing, what I'm observing in this field of work. Um, and time will tell and give us more perspective and exact data to to clarify what um, what may have been going on. Yeah, and uh, reading the, uh, the uh, article about Justin Bieber, where he credits the prayer, the meditation, and particularly the music in helping him recover, um, he's, he, he states, for instance, uh, I pray and meditate, things like that. I write music and I listen to music, and music is so powerful. I can really, it can really help you when you're feeling low. Melissa, how important can an interest like music be as a coping strategy for those struggling with their mental health? 
you really have a point there when you say an interest like music because what what I'm hearing when I, I hear this sentence or this Justin Bieber talking about his uh, how music helped him is generally speaking, he's talking about the role of having a hobby, an interest or a passion in life. It happens that for him it's music, but for other people it's going to be different things. And yes, engaging with a passion or a hobby or an interest is going to be a component that's going to help at least some people who are struggling with their mental health cope with the situation. And that's going to happen through different means. I can give you an example of a few. The first one is that engaging with something, with a hobby or passion of yours, from a neuroscientific standpoint, it's going to release dopamine in your brain and that's going to help you feel good. It's, 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 you're going to feel more pleasure, which again, if you're going through a difficult time, you're going to be glad for that hour a day where you might be feeling a little bit more pleasure. Um, it's also going to um, help you get out of your mind almost as a form of distraction. And if you think of difficulties or struggles with mental health, whatever it is that people are going through, the common denominator between their struggles, whether it's anxiety or, or an eating disorder or, or feeling depressed, the common denominator is that you're prisoner of your own mind. With anxiety, you're prisoner of thoughts, of worrying thoughts, of thoughts that things are, are going to go bad, catastrophizing thoughts that we call if you're struggling with feeling depressed, you're going to be quite, uh, your mind's going to be prisoner of um, thoughts that maybe you're not worth much or that you're, um, it's never going to get better or hopelessness. If you're struggling with um, an eating disorder, you're going to be prisoner of obsessive thoughts around food or your body image. So regardless of your challenge, usually there's this common factor that you're a prisoner of your own mind. And through a hobby and interest, you're going to have these moments in the day where you're going to set yourself free from, these, from this prison of your mind. So this is how um, a hobby and interest can be beneficial for you. And then it's going to also help uh, through creating a routine, which we know for some difficulties, having a routine can, can be part of a solution. And it's going to help you maybe have something to look forward to if you're going through a phase in your life where it's dark and things feel meaningless. We sometimes have this tendency to think as human beings that it's going to be one big solution that's going to get us out of our current struggle with mental health. But it's actually a lot of little things put together that are going to create a solution. And what goes with this statement is also the... What's important to know is that while having a hobby and interest is going to help a lot of people, it's not always going to be obviously the only solution and it's not going to be a sufficient solution for a lot of difficulties. If you've been, if you're experiencing trauma or if you're really stuck in the midst of an eating disorder or you've been, you're clinically depressed, it's not going to be sufficient, but it's going to be one of those little things that are going to be part of the solution, having a hobby. Fascinating the strategy you're using to overcome this. Could you explain a little more? Because I understand that you you're already using the music therapy here in the Kusnev practice. Could you, could you explain a little more how it's used in your clinical environment and and how what kind of results you've you've seen from it? Yes. Yeah, so we do use music therapy at the Kusnev practice. 
And music therapy, there are so many different forms of it. That's the first thing to know. What they all have in common, and this is probably going to sound quite obvious for people listening, is that they use uh, music as the therapeutic tool to help the people heal or recover, which is different from other forms of psychotherapy, such as talk therapy, where you're using language. So that would be the first point. And then it might be easier for me to illustrate a few different ways how music therapy can be used, uh, more than going to the theory of it. One example could be the music therapist could be sitting with the person who's experiencing difficulties and instead of having them talk about a certain situation, um, for example, a difficult relationship with a parent, they could tell them, okay, play a few notes that would represent what it feels like for you. And then maybe a few notes of what hope, hope feels like for you. And they can enter a dialogue like that where something's being expressed without using words. Um, so that would be a situation. I've seen it being used also with um, more on, almost on a cognitive level. Uh, if you have, for example, someone with an eating disorder, what you usually see in eating disorders is personality traits of high perfectionism. They, they go hand in hand quite often. And with, with an instrument, again, for example, the piano, because it's quite accessible to everybody, the piano, you can start working on that perfectionism and challenge this belief that you always have to be perfect through having the person improvise a melody. Because when you're improvising, there's no right or wrong. And there's no way of doing it perfectly. You're just going to do it your own way. And a good music therapist will help the person understand that process. And then it can be carried out in other areas of their life that, and really challenge the idea of having to be perfect all the time. And then there's other ways of using music therapy, especially in the US, but we use it at the Kirsten practice too. It's, it's more by incorporating ancient instruments, for example, the gong, which is an instrument that's about 4,000 years old, or singing bowls. In those sessions, the client is a lot more passive than the ones I've described before. They'll usually be lying down or they can be sitting down um, with their eyes closed and pretty relaxed. And just for maybe 60 minutes listening to these sounds and because these sounds are so ancient they've been there for civil so many different civilizations it's going to create this really sometimes not always powerful experience for someone almost like the reconnecting to who they really are or to ancestors if you've never experienced it it may sound a little strange and i'd really encourage you to experience it once I've had a client once said that it felt like they were going back home. Whatever that meant to them, it, it's what it felt like for them. And we know also, for example, these type of sessions with ancient healing instruments, that it provides, and this has been a measured scientifically, it's going to sometimes bring people into a deep state of relaxation. And relaxation... It's a lot more than just feeling good during that session and, and feeling the state of being relaxed. It's indispensable um, to healing the nervous system. And a lot of difficulties, mental health difficulties, pathologies, the root source of it, or at least something that goes with having a difficulty, is that the nervous system is either under-functioning, shut down, depressed, or over-functioning. 
So through these sessions, you're learning to relax, you're relaxing that nervous system, and that's going to be very important in recovering as well. Those form of expressions you're, you're relating to are very interesting for our audience to understand how we can unlock basically that, that uh, <laughs> personal expression and particularly the, uh, the emotions you can actually put on. And this is difficult to put in words and putting it into uh, music notes is uh, probably uh, easier for the patient. Mm -hmm. In that respect, what kind of signs can friend and family look for if someone is believed to, to, to have those kind of suicidal thoughts and depression and mental challenges in your, in your opinion? Let's briefly start by maybe defining the word depression, because I'm sure that five different people listening to the podcast, this podcast, are going to have five different ways of picturing depression. And it's a term that's so uh, used in our society. As humans, you have to picture us all being on a continuum. On one end of the continuum, there's bliss, super happy, life is amazing. On the other end, there would be what I would call clinical depression or major depressive episode. All humans were somewhere on that continuum. It's not that we're one day on one end, the other day on the, on the, end, on the, on the other end. And we're all going to fluctuate on that continuum throughout life. It's completely normal and it's part of being human. We go through day-to-day -day life and have loads of interaction and events happens to us. And this is going to be dictated by biology, psychology, social factors, loads of different things. And so people sometimes use the word depressed, and rightly so, when they're feeling somewhat on that continuum close to, on one end, that's more, well, the depressed end. And then when we get to that extreme, that's that extreme of clinical depression, that's what I as a clinician would call depression, not to invalidate wherever you are on that continuum. So for some people in their lives, they're feeling depressed in the sense of the quality, the intensity, the duration of the feeling is becoming problematic and it's getting hard to function. Um, so they're on that continuum on, on that end. For these people, what you would usually see is a combination of lots of different symptoms. It could be that they're either sleeping a lot more than usual or sleeping a lot less than usual. It can be that they're gaining a lot of weight uh, or that they're losing weight suddenly. So they're not very clear symptoms and they're very subjective. Uh, it can be that they're feeling hopeless that they're, and they're expressing it or that they're quite irritable, um, that they're having a hard time concentrating. But again, because these symptoms are usually experienced quite subjectively, it's not always that easy to see it from the outside. And sometimes the person can hide it really well and you, it would go unnoticed. And we see that in the, in the media sometimes. We hear someone... Um, unfortunately um, died by suicide and people say oh I had no idea he was having a hard time so it's not always easy to see these signs and um, for suicidal thoughts that you mentioned we would call as, as clinicians suicidal ideation there again it's it's not obvious because it's going on inside the person's head what I can tell you though and we know that from research and practice is that a majority of people who are having suicidal ideation, if you ask them the question, they will answer you very honestly. And people are surprised by that fact. But a vast majority of people would tell you, yes, and I have a plan, or no, if you, if, if you actually asked the question. So for people that basically focus on those signals and see that somebody is not behaving like the, um, the own self, 
how is it then important to to encourage those with hobbies and interests like sport and music and, and reading to embrace them further and use them as a coping strategies when they are struggling with their mental health or their mental challenge? How do you see that being yeah, helpful in that respect? It can definitely be be helpful. As I explained before, it's going to be lots of little things put together. I mean, I'm generalizing, but for the majority of difficulties that are going to help the person get out of of, of this challenge. So, um, so it's it's going to help if, if they feel able to and if they don't to not beat themselves up and to, to know that that's also okay and it's a process. So you mean that these strategies in used in a holistic way, we say holistic way when they are used in conjunction uh, with uh, improvements like diet and sleep and reduce the need, would that actually reduce the need for the prescription drugs or, or would you see that being just a, a side strategy or a core strategy for you? They can reduce the need for prescription drugs. Um, the answer is that it will so depend on the person, on their very individual situation, on what exactly they're struggling with. I mean, if you're experiencing panic attacks, which is quite common, it's going to help to have a hobby. We know physiologically it's going to help eliminate some of the some of the stress in the body so your threshold for the next panic attack is lower if your hobby is a sport it's going to again give you that distraction for a while it's going to have loads of benefits but it might be not sufficient to get to the root cause of the problem and actually heal it but it doesn't mean it it's not helpful it's just going to be one of, of many contributing factors um, so i'm aware i'm not answering exactly the question because it, it, it's just going to depend so much on the problem of the person of course and then Justin Bieber's admission uh, come from similar comments from other entertainers such as Lady Gaga and Kanye West and Selena Gomez about their, the, the mental um, health challenges that they're going through. How significant is it that these figures have come forward and can this help other young people deal with their own issues in your opinion? It's significant and it's not easy to understand from an adult mind because adults, we have usually less of a tendency to look up to um, to celebrities or idols. I mean, we, we usually don't have posters in our bedroom anymore, etc. But adolescents, teenagers, part of the developmental process is going to be to look up to these people. I'll give you a very brief theoretical background on it. What happens is that when you're a child, you can picture the child's sense of identity as a sponge. And then water's going to come in that sponge. Those are going to be all the belief and the values and the thought, belief and values mostly that the child has that are going to constitute their identity. And this water coming in is being, it's coming mainly from parents because as children, you're going to believe everything your parents tell you. Um, so if your parents don't believe in climate change, you won't believe in climate change. If your parent believes that, have, that talking about sadness is not okay, you're going to believe talking about sadness is not okay. And then part of the adolescent process is going to be building your own identity and separating from your family and becoming an adult of your own a little later. So this sponge, you're going to have teenagers, they're going to wring it out, get some of that water out, so all these belief values that they believe to be true as children because the parents told them and decide, okay, what water am I keeping? 
what am I adding from somewhere else? What is going to be me? What's going to be my identity? What am I going to believe in? Which adult do I want to become? And in that process, they're going to use, a, they're going to detach quite a bit from parents, which is why you'll see lots of uh, crisis usually happening in, in the teenager where they'll, you know, leave and slam the door and be angry at their parents. And they'll be relying a little bit more on their peer group and on celebrities, usually on idols to constitute the new sense of identity and put that water in the sponge. So if you put yourself in that way of thinking and that developmental process, a celebrity that someone looks up to, whoever it may be, it's going to be huge for a teenager because it's going to add that water and the sponge. It's going to constitute a new way of a teenager wanting to be. So there may be in this situation you described of a Lady Gaga or Justin Bieber saying, okay, it's, it's okay to have mental health problems and it's okay to talk about them. Well, in the sponge, you're going to start becoming someone who believes, well, it's okay to have mental health problems and it's okay to talk about them. And it's going to over time reduce stigmatization, which is going to allow more people to talk about it uh, and people to get better more easily too. So it's turn to a question, yes, it's quite significant that these people are speaking up. And I think over time, the more it's done, um, the more this younger generation will become one day, you know, adults, leaders, and it will create a new society, I think, one day where it's okay to talk about all of this. Well, thank you. I think it's uh, the, the, uh, the analogy of the sponge really is uh, very visible for, for audience to understand, you know, how this critical stage is for a child to become an adolescent and then an adult. So this is really uh, casting some important light on this. Talking about this importance, uh, how important is it for those with those kind of issues to speak up and to be open about them and, and how can then that help uh, them on the road of recovery? So there's no one rule, but um, it can be valuable for the person and that in different ways. One, the first way I can think of is that it's going to able the person, again, depending who they talk to, etc., which belongs to each person to decide, it's going to allow them to access support. Uh, because if people are aware you're having a difficult time, they're going to be able to reach out to you and offer support. And that can take so many different forms. If you're having, again, more of a, an anxious, an anxiety disorder and you're you're just someone very anxious, let's say, and you've talked about this with one of your best friends and they can notice what's going on for you more easily and they might be able to be part of the solution by telling you, okay, I think right now that you're being very anxious and I'm not experiencing reality in the same way as you are. And that can help you realize what's going on and it, it can be part of the solution. Or if you're someone that's feeling somewhere, I was talking about this continuum of, of depression, you're feeling quite depressed in one stage of your life and your loved ones know about it, well, part of the symptoms of depression um, is that you're going to feel quite guilty about asking for help. You're going to feel you're quite worthless. So if you talk about it, um, people are going to be able to reach out to you and prove you don't know they actually do care. So it's, it's going to have a role and a lot of healing can be found in just having a community of people um, know what's going on for you because we are social animals. And social animals, they like to have each other and there's comfort to be found. And I can tell you a recent example of, um, quite recent, I was working with a young woman 
and this is not the first time it happened, uh, had the experience to miscarriage in the first three months of her pregnancy. And she was experiencing a lot of, uh, well, she was going through a grieving process and um, a lot of pain around it. And in our society, in the first three months of pregnancy, women usually, or couples, excuse me, they decide not to tell friends and family. They wait for three months so that if there's a miscarriage, nobody knows. And she decided following a handful of sessions that she was going to ask for support and be open about it and talk to friends. She was amazed, and this happens often, by how many people said, oh, me too. So unlocking this situation and allowing other people to talk, right? Exactly, and people to relate, and you realize that uh, it's actually quite part of the human experience to go through hard times, and you're not the only one. Um, so opening up about it allows you to witness that <laughs> with your own eyes. The last thing I'll say, though, for that question is that not everybody is able or feels able to be open about the, the struggles. And that's also okay. There's not, you don't have to do anything you're not comfortable with. Um, again, if you've experienced some forms of trauma, you might f physically be feeling that you can't trust anybody again. I was saying before, if you're in the midst of um, feeling pretty depressed, you might feel so worthless and that you're a burden to everybody, so you won't manage to talk to people. That's also okay. So there's no, um, there's no one way of doing it, um, but the support available if you need it. Right, so we were this morning discussing the uh, depression and the suicidal thoughts uh, in young people. This is um, Philippe Rovere. I was this morning with uh, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you very much. Melissa is our psychologist and operation coordinator and project manager here at the Christmas practice. Thank you again. Have a good day.